0: Good morning again, church. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, uh, and I serve on the team of elders. And one thing to know about this church is that we're one of those talk-back churches. Uh, I get a little extra insecure when folks aren't talking back to me because we're not an audience, we're a congregation. We can do that, amen? So we're in week five of The Gospel is for Everyone. It's a study in the book of Romans alongside our sister church in Austin Mosaic Church, we're moving beyond Paul's description in chapter 1 of God's wrath and sexual deviance. We were brave to study chapter 1 last week. I think the things that are most touchy are perhaps sometimes the the areas where we need to see God's redemption play out most effectively in our lives. And y'all who were here last week were so brave to honor God and be used As vessels of his his holy love. As we went through uh, the the end of chapter 1 of Romans. Now today in Romans 2, it doesn't talk about wrath once, but twice. And judgment, but also listen, the redemptive power of the kindness of God. Which disarms devils that look to dominate me. Amen, and you. So let's stand to our feet to honor the reading of God's word. Romans 2. I'll read verses 1 through 8. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man? When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word, which goes beyond our many various dispositions and assumptions and thoughts. and helps us to change and grow in you. Lord, we judge wrongly. We we judge ourselves and we judge others wrongly. Wrongly, either by denying your righteous standard of judgment or by wrongly assessing it. So help us to really see. Help us to see our sin, and more importantly, your kindness and holiness, in the right light. And to live in light of that with your power for such a time as this. Amen. Today, as I preach back through these eight verses, we're going to talk about man's judgment, God's kindness, and God's judgment. Take the most time on the first few, especially this first one, man's judgment. Before we go any further, I have a a very real question for you. Do you aspire to mindlessly repeating the canned speech of the masses? Do you want to conform to the groupthink of our generation? If so, then just check out for about the next five minutes and don't pay any attention. Because what we're going to see in these first few verses of Romans chapter 2 is that God totally flips the script on what we think God's word and a few other places in the New Testament says about judging. But if you're okay with God giving you a holy and redemptive reset to your thinking, then, then focus up what God's saying here. Verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man or woman, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you the judge should never, ever, ever judge for any reason whatsoever. No, it doesn't say that. It says you the judge practice the very same Things. So, in this context, Paul's not talking about judging implicitly being a problem, but judging the very same things that we practice ourselves. This is my story. This is your story. This is our story. We judge. Even as we're still practicing the same things, now the end of Romans one brings a list that it's going to be really hard for any of us to rightly think that we're not on. And so we're all in this place of rightly being under the judgment of God. And what makes it worse is when we wrongly judge ourselves, and when we wrongly judge others, and we practice things that we're judging in others. So in context here, this is really saying that it's a problem to not judge ourselves. Consider some of the other commonly misunderstood New Testament references or pseudo-references in, in our culture. I think our culture, I think that something like the, the death of these specific experts. Like, you have a PhD, but I have Google. So, like, we're all, in, 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 as far as the Bible... It's like, we don't read it, but we sure are experts. And so you'll hear like rappers or artists say things like, only God can judge me. What's crazy is if they would just listen to their own words, that's some of the strongest preaching they could ever receive because God will judge us. And you'll hear things like, I heard a politician say, thou shalt not judge The Bible totally doesn't say that. That's not in the top 10. I think what they're trying to interpret is Matthew 7. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, judge not lest ye be judged. For with the same measure you judge others, it will be measured to you. So basically, there is a judgment. And be careful in how you judge others so that you can contextually judge yourself In the same way. So this is saying, Jesus is saying, please judge yourself like you judge others. And judge your behavior in a way that brings yourself humbly before me so that you can see my power redeem you. Jesus is saying, judge. we, we, We who play the part of judge should also render ourselves to the part of judged. And we don't. I think that church should be at least a place for good and health, healthy judgment of ourselves. If I can't judge rightly that I need God, how am I supposed to treasure my savior? How will communion, receiving his the sweetness of his body and his blood taste sweet without understandably tasting the bitterness of my own body and flesh? And soul ripe with the, the failure of my own best efforts to do good without God. That's really the essence of sin. It's me trying my best to be a really good religious boy without God's help because I think that's humility somehow. That I don't need God, I just need to perform for God. And then I judge others who aren't performing based on my standards, irrespective of God's standards. That's sin. You may or may not be aware, and I'm not speaking facetiously right now, you may or may not be aware that church people have a reputation for being overly judgmental. I, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that there are some people who maybe came to know Jesus in our church the last few years and didn't know of this stereotype, I'm hoping. But it is, it is a somewhat of a relatively common reputation. What if some, something like the opposite is actually true? That church people aren't judgmental enough. Or more specifically, that we we routinely tend to aim our judgment wrongly at others instead of primarily at ourselves. In a way that can cause us to assess our need before God and regularly have it met outside of ourselves by God. I think the church needs to be a place where we approach Jesus. We, we see and savor his matchless beauty. We sing of it. We celebrate it. And as we're lifting up his glory, we can, in light of that, begin to see in that context our own inglorious habits that maybe we covered over with our best intentions. But as we draw closer to Jesus and as he gets lifted up higher, my lower base standards of judging myself good become tainted as they are, seen for what they are. Understanding myself as needing God, as sinful. I'm talking about right judgment. People say other things like, man, the church is, is, has too many hypocrites. I can't come to church. In some ways, I think the church doesn't have enough hypocrites. We need to see more hypocrites come into the church and see God change us. In essence, the church got two more hypocrites today when you and I walked into the church. But when we can bring our hypocrisy before Jesus and before his throne and see him help us to get things a little bit more accurate, to, to live more consistently with his power and his grace, and less less in consistency with my own best efforts, well, that's when the ancient power of God continues to flow through hypocrites-turned-saints like us. Here's another misunderstood New Testament reference, John 3.16. Beautiful and powerful. I I think pretty much every week I share this verse. You're welcome. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave lord let us not get used to this that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish under the judgment that we deserve should not perish but have eternal life now let's key on the word in on this word perish in john 3:16 because here's where we misunderstand what god gives in light of judgment the next two verses of John three, clarify this verse 17 for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Pastor Peter, why do we need to be saved? Thank you for asking. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You see, without God's help, with our own best effort, we are condemned already. And so in light of this reality, it's dangerous to point the finger at other people when we're the ones who are in need of the very same things that we're judging. What we need to do is judge rightly that we need it, receive the provision routinely from God, and judge others in need of the same thing we need. Seeing this reality requires us to judge more. John 2, or Romans 2, talks about really judging yourself more. It talks about the failure to properly judge ourselves. Because you, the judge, verse 1, practice the very same things. Now, verse 2 and 3. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So, So, judging is necessary. It's, you can say that there's no judgment, but it doesn't take away from reality. There's judgment. It rightly falls on those of us who practice these things. Verse three, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? No. This word such things is mentioned twice. It references what Paul addressed in the chapter before. It's Kind of references the whole long category that we were brave enough to really receive the whole of. One of the other things that we talked about last week, though, is in our discomfort, our propensity to divide ourselves into wrong categories. When we consider the such things that Paul's mentioning, we, we divide those categories out in ways that make ourselves feel more comfortable with our sin. And sin shouldn't be comforting. The Savior is the only true comforter. But here's what we do. We say, okay, well, this, this is kind of my part of the such things that Paul's mentioning. And this is kind of their part of the such things uh, that he's talking about that, that deserve judgment. And so what we do is we say, we judge them because we're good. It's kind of us versus them. Turn to your neighbor and say, there is no them turn back to your other neighbor and say, it's all just us. There is no them. There is no category of them that's categorically, that's very redundant, that's different than us. We all need this Savior because we're all under the same judgment. And in our debased state, like it's saying in in Romans 1, we in our minds become so fuzzy that we try to create these false categories of someone else that needs something that I don't also need. So in particular, verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1 describes part of the such things when it talks about sexual deviance and, quote, exchange these people who exchange natural relations for those contrary to nature. Guess what? In one way or another, we all do that. But then we, we kind of judge them as if there's a them. All the, all the while, we're doing A different part of the such things, like verses 29 and 30. They, we, were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Now, are you not on that list? If you think so, you just lied, so you're you're on it. God wants me to judge myself in need of him because that's what I am. He wants right judgment. We do this us versus them thing to make ourselves feel better. And it's just a false comfort here. I'll just give you an example of how we do this in our polarized culture with money alone. So if I perceive myself to be responsible with money, which is kind of the, uh, the, the postmodern generation that we get to afford ourselves this self-definition where I can perceive myself to be anything and I'm, I'm good. I can blog about it. So if I perceive myself to be good with money and responsible with money, but I'm practicing greed by not giving, I can judge other people who aren't as responsible with money, even if they're more generous than me. And on the other end, I mean that, that right there, the, the caricature of the, overly conservative and yet not liberal with your giving type of person is probably a fair caricature of a lot of people in our country. On the other hand, I can consider myself liberal with my giving and I can judge those who appear in my perspective, in my judgment, wrong judgment or right judgment. I don't know. I can judge others who appear to not be as generous as me and all the while be overly liberal in my spending as well. And so we have these false categories of us versus them as if there's an us that's okay and a them that's not okay. And even with just money, none of us are okay. We need God's wisdom. We need repentance. We need change. And that's just talking about money. if we talked, we we added to this sexual ethic, uh, talks of politics, parenting styles, that would get really hot. We do this it's just us. It's us that need Jesus. So God wants us to judge ourselves rightly, but then let's get really practical because when we rightly judge ourselves, we need to be able to release that judgment to God. First John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, Romans 1 and 2 talk about all unrighteousness a few times in context of God's wrath. I just love that 1 John talks about all unrighteousness in context of not just God's forgiveness, but cleansing. But it's when we confess our sins. So kind of as a summary, we need to judge ourselves rightly and confess our sins. And it starts with judging rightly. If I can't judge based on the word of God, then My best effort at judging myself based on my own standards or my culture standards, right wing, left wing, any sort of wing. If I judge myself based on any other standards other than a transcendent standard, my attempt, my vain attempt at morals just degenerates into moralism, which kind of becomes a false antichrist religion within itself. That I can get to God through this ism rather than Jesus. So we need to see God making us culpable, responsible for our sin, and judge that rightly in order to judge that I'm in need of forgiveness. But then secondly, quickly, we need to confess and rather than condemn. Confess our sin rather than condemn ourselves. I've actually noticed in my experience the last 15 or so years of ministry that the people who tend to be more self-condemning tend to be more caught in the cycle of the same sin that they think their self-condemnation is going to cure. God doesn't want you to beat yourself down. He wants you to confess your sin and to confess your identity as a child of God based on the word of God so that you can rightly disassociate yourself from the lies of the enemy. He wants us to confess our sin and release it. The strongest men that I know in my life, uh, the, the elders in our church that, that pray for me, are the men who are just, just fine with being weak. Uh, they, can, they can reject that old lie that real manhood is kind of some sort of emotionless stoicism. And they can, they can cry and confess sin over and over again. And walk in repentance. This is the reason why in our church we value old fashioned habits, like the redemptive habit of a public confession statement and taking communion every week. Because in the habit based on faith, when I apply my faith to an ancient habit like this that God has given me, I can take dominion over myself, over my self condemnation. Over my harsh judgment of others and of myself. Without these habits, we tend to harden ourselves. Instead of softening ourselves, we tend to harden ourselves. Verse 4 says this rightly. Are we still with me? Verse 1, 2, and 3. Now we're in 4. I'm counting all right, right? Verse 4. Or do you presume? Everyone say presume. Do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, this word presume that is translated in our English comes from a Greek word that was originally used by Paul, which means to despise, which is why the King James has this word despise in Romans 2. It means to disdain or to think little or nothing of. Do we think little or nothing of God and his mercy when we're judging others who need the same mercy we do? In our home, my wife does a lot of laundry. Now, I'm going to share an example how this relates to verse 4, but just as a quick disclaimer, as far as gender roles within marriage, There's way more freedom and diversity in what the Bible actually says than what we're accustomed to thinking it says based on maybe traditional or conservative culture. I'll give you, for example, like there aren't as many maybe restrictions on what women should be doing as we might think. And the Bible doesn't let men off the hook as much as conservative culture lets men off the hook in some ways. As if men aren't primarily responsible for the spiritual and emotional well-being of their families. So, disclaimer over. But in our home, I've been banned from the laundry machine for a few years at different times. Um, And nevertheless, my wife, listen, my wife does not do the laundry so that she can be taken for granted. She doesn't do the laundry so that in our home, among my children and myself, that we would perpetuate this blind expectation for clean clothes. We must not presume on the riches of her kindness in doing the laundry. And similarly, here's what happens when we judge others as it relates to sin in context of the mercy that we can receive from God. When we judge others... And yet we practice the same things. We're presuming, we're thinking little of God's mercy toward us. We're despising the gift of life that he's given us, the richness of life that he's given us. Or to just tie the illustration all the way in, God does not clothe us with his clothing, his righteousness, his covering, so that we can pull the covering off of other people that he's intended it for as well. That's thinking little of God in an antichrist, against God type of presumption. Now, the kindness of God is meant to do something different. So our second point here, God's kindness. I'm going to read verse 4 again. Verse 4 says, Do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to Repentance. Again, when we, when we look out at others and judge them as lesser for not receiving something that we should be in the process and the softening of receiving, we're spitting in the face of a God who's paid such a high price to show us such a costly kindness. Man's judgment leads to presumption, but God's kindness leads to repentance. And I think one of the greatest ways this is illustrated is in Victor Hugo's iconic novel, Les Miserables, or as we call it in Texas, Les Miserables. <laughs> so in this story, the thief, Jean Valjean, he, he commits a small crime in stealing like a, a loaf of bread, and he's shown harsh treatment, years of labor and imprisonment and in slavery. And so he knows about harsh judgment and nonetheless, when he 's shown sacrificial hospitality by a Christian priest, he presumes upon that kindness, and he steals a golden lampstand from this priest so he 's caught by a police officer brought back in to, to be confronted before the priest, like caught red handed, and the priest shows him unmerited kindness. Jean Valjean knew he was dead he, like i 'm I'm caught here i 'm guilty. But what did the priest do? The priest said, oh, no, no, I, I gave this to him. In this moment, Valjean could have hardened his heart. He could have said, you know, judged the priest, said, you shouldn't have had something so expensive in the first place. Started like a, a, a hashtag about the scandal in the church about how this priest shouldn't have had such nice things and hardened himself against it. But instead, he softened his heart. He said, look, I... I'm caught. I need this mercy. And in this moment, he was drawn to God and, and Valjean transformed into a, a man of mercy, a vessel of God's unmerited grace. And he, he, he influenced hundreds of other people in the story. I, I pretty much just spoiled it all for you. If you haven't read it or seen the movie, you're welcome. But God's grace for us is meant to be transformative, and it has the power to do that. Verse 4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, the word kindness is a word that can also be translated mildness. Isn't it cool that of all the expectations for the Jewish Messiah and the Savior to conquer the opposition of the world's enemies, He is the one who disarms armies with his mildness. He disarms my resistance and pride with his mildness. There's a story of a prostitute who is forgiven by Jesus, and she goes before, interrupts a meeting of some really self-righteous religious people that are meeting with Jesus and totally breaks all the customary rules about uh, what's awkward and not awkward, and she starts weeping and wiping his hair. And, and these people are, are like, this guy thinks he's God or something, but he doesn't even know what kind of woman this is. Now, the difference is, no, they didn't understand what kind of men they were because they weren't rightly judging. They were presuming upon the kindness of God. And like most people in our world, like, there's some people who are pretty good people, but it's not their fault. They're made in the image of a good God, the same God that we reject. So these people are presuming upon God's kindness, judging this woman as lesser. And Jesus says something amazing. He says, he who is, or she who is forgiven much, loves much. It's like saying that the kindness of God draws me to this repentance, this loving that I was incapable of loving with. And I relate to this story a lot. And Share this story almost as much as John 3:16, because I am that prostitute i 've seen the unmerited kindness of Jesus, whether it 's 21 years ago, meeting me and confronting me and my resistance as a perverted teenager, or confronting me day after day as a temper-stricken father. His kindness is more relentless than my resistance, and it 's meant to soften my heart into repentance. Now, in one sense, again, we can't understand the kindness of God without rightly judging what sin is and how he alone forgives it. But we can't just stop there. People don't tend to repent of their sin just because we tell them they're sinful. It's our responsibility, though, to to show them the meekness of Jesus by how particularly we've rightly judged our own sin and gone before the throne of grace and received new life, we see the mildness of Jesus that draws us. Jesus is the one who said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and and learn from me. I am gentle and mild and humble in heart. Learn from me. You'll find rest for your souls. Do you know anyone that needs rest for their souls? Me and you, maybe, and everyone. You can find false rest in a lot of things, or you can find true, eternal, irrevocable, irreplaceable rest in Jesus. And he says, come to me. And with his power, he is not willing or intending that you would stay the way you are when you come to him. God's rich and kind affection for me now is not a stamp of approval on my current behavior or disposition or attitudes. It's a wooing of my broken heart and yours. And so knowing this last thing I have to say about God's kindness is don't mistake God's kindness for man's niceness. Nice and kind are very, very different. I'll just give you an example. Back when I was in college, there was a show called American Idol. Is that still a thing? Still a thing. I would love to say that I didn't know because I've been reading too many books, but no. okay. So American Idol, we we know this where the there is that invariably in each season there's a person who gets up there and they become famous for being terrible, right? Like this dude or this girl just does not know how bad that thing she calls music sounds. It's painful, right? And I've always asked, like, how do these people get to the point where they're able? to go before all these people and not be aware that they're so bad. And I would wager to say that along the way, they ran into a lot of nice people who encouraged them, who were nice, but were not kind. Because kindness would help lead you to a different way of thinking about things that doesn't make yourself be exposed like that. And similarly, when it comes to my sin, there are many people who can be nice to me, but only in a way that perpetuates their own habits that are destructive in their lives. But love-soaked, blood-bought kindness is very different. It leads me to a supernatural change of mind, which the Bible calls repentance. Finally, it leads to the third point, God's judgment. How does God's judgment work? It's really, I mean, the the words in chapter two really correlate with chapter one. We talked about this last week, but verse six, check this out. God will render to each one according to his works. The word render is such a good translation. He will render. So it comes from a word similar to Chapter 1, when we see that he gave them over, paradidomi, this word render is, is similar, similar root. He, he will deliver them up, give them over to their own sin, their own lust. Uh, part of the scary thing about God's judgment and wrath is that he'll, he'll, he'll just kind of let us do what we want. Thank God it doesn't stop there. He, he'll give them over to that. It's kind of like my, my mother-in-law is a, a parenting guru. Uh, she's in the back there, so you can embarrass her too. Uh, she, she's really into love and logic, um, allowing our children to grow up and, and feel in proportion the, the, the consequences of their own actions. So, for instance, my son, recently, seven years old, he's been really on this frog kick. Um, he likes to go find frogs outside, but he doesn't like to put things back that he messes up. So he'll pull up little lids on things and he'll like move my rocks around. So I'm going to render to him the gift of being able to move all sorts of rocks in the next few weeks. I have a few thousand pounds of rocks I needed moved in other places. And, and I'm just going to let him do what he's been doing. And That's kind of what God's judgment does. Looks like. Verse 7, check this out. To those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But, verse 8, for those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Look, we are slaves to sin. We obey the inner depravity that's in us because of our rejection of God. And so we obey unrighteousness. To, the, to those of us, there will be wrath and fury. Now, I think, I think Paul here in verse 7 is speaking hypothetically. And there's a lot of other men who have gone before me that agree with this. They kind of gave me that idea. He's speaking hypothetically. When he says, hey, are you, are you seeking immortality? Are you, are you doing good with the whole perfect patience, uh, glory thing? If that's you then he's going to render to you eternal life. But here's the problem. That's not any of us. We're all here in verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And we can't understand Romans 2, 7, and 8 without seeing what's really made clear in Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin... Is death. The, the consequence, the natural logic, the consequence of us choosing to disobey God in our disposition, in our nature, in our actions, God will render to us the consequences of that. Death. Separation from God. It's not just a someday thing. It's kind of like a systemic thing now. Death. The wages. He he just He's just so people say, I don't know if I can believe in a God that sends people to hell. Well, well, technically, he just renders to us the hell that we participate in and we bring culmination to. The wages of sin is death. But but there, there is someone who has, by patience and well-doing, sought for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life who for the joy set before him, nonetheless, chose to endure our cross. He traded. Jesus lived a perfect life. There's two, there, technically, there isn't us and them then. There is us, sinners, and him, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, the life that we should have lived. And the wages for his life was eternal life. And he chose to trade wages for anyone who would be willing to, to rightly judge that we need it, confess our sin, and receive new life. And we remind ourselves of this. We remind our judgment of this every week. We, we, we remind ourselves as we confess, as we empty ourselves out and fill ourselves with new life, and as we grow in the gospel and remind ourselves of the gospel over and over and over again, We grow in glory, and we never graduate from this. It's an eternal life that he's promised us as a trade. Our death, he takes the wrath on the cross. His life, he renders to those who don't deserve it. Would you pray with me?